Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I'm anchoring this week's podcast from North America, Washington, D.C., to be exact, where the Justice Department has certainly been busy. I'm joined by Scott McCartney, who finds himself in the Middle East this week and joins us through the wonders of easy global communications. Speaking of communications, we have the pleasure this week of talking to one of the great communicators in the airline business, John McDonald. Scott, I hope you're having a good trip, and I'm glad you can join us, even though we are many time zones apart. Ben, I'm having a fabulous trip and enjoying great weather, and you know I wouldn't miss Airlines Confidential. Besides, there's plenty to talk about this week besides the outstanding falafel I had yesterday, and we will talk about food later. There's a lot of news this week that you can't talk about since you serve on the board of directors of JetBlue, so I get free reign to comment on all that Justice Department news. But Monsieur Baldanza, there's some JetBlue news you can talk about, right? May we? There is, Scott. JetBlue is going to continental Europe, starting with flights to Paris, Charles de Gaulle, on June 29th. Flights to London started last August. Fares start at $479 round trip for coach and about $1,900, $1,899 for the mint business class product with a lie flat bed. That's a whole lot lower than the existing fares. This is the case where JetBlue is definitely going to impact the big boys. With the existing London service, JetBlue is slowly building its transatlantic service. And the reason it makes so much sense, Scott, is because JetBlue's success in the transcon markets convince them that it's similar distances to Europe. And while some of the things are a little different, they can fly east from New York and Boston instead of west with similar success. And what makes it work with these fares is not only JetBlue's low cost, but the fact that it's the super efficient and relatively small Airbus A321. You put a wide body on a trip like this, Scott, and all of a sudden it changes the risk profile dramatically. You need a lot more business class customers. The good months aren't as good and the weak months are really bad. But you shrink that plane down to the A321 size and you can make money 12 months out of the year because you just don't need that many people on the plane every trip. So it's great new flying for a great company. I think it's really interesting, Ben. It's really interesting to see how JetBlue is going to shake up this market. You know, from time to time, we see low-cost service enter the transatlantic market, and it usually comes in with big planes. Um, so it's really interesting 
what you're talking about. And of course, JetBlue has a much deeper customer base than some of the new entrants have over the years. I think this is really going to impact the market, uh, just as JetBlue has in the transatlantic market. So really going to be interesting to watch. For travelers, they'll have to pay real attention to when the JetBlue flight is. I suspect other airlines will match head-to-head with JetBlue. But if there's only one flight a day, there may be other flights on other airlines that are a whole lot more expensive. So it'll pay to look closely at the schedule as well as fares. But it's really going to be fun to watch how this changes the business. I think that's right, Scott. You know, a few years before I joined the JetBlue board, I served on the Wow Air board. And WOW was a very successful carrier when their fleet was the A320 and 321. But then they got a little greedy in their growth and they decided to lease the much bigger A330 widebody so they could serve California nonstop from Reykjavik. And that single decision is really what killed the company. Now, the rebirth of WOW, which is called Play, includes several people from WOW, and they've said multiple times publicly that they're going to stick to the A320 and A321. We'll see if they can stay disciplined on that. That's really fascinating. Okay, the bigger JetBlue news this week was that the Justice Department sued to stop the JetBlue Spirit merger. This was widely expected since the Biden administration has been opposed to mergers and consolidation in many industries and already sued to stop JetBlue's Northeast alliance with American Airlines. One interesting move in all this was that the suit was filed in federal court in Boston. Boston isn't home to either airline, but it is the same court where the Northeast Alliance suit was heard. The judge in that case hasn't ruled yet. So you might immediately speculate that the attorney general wants to see the two cases decided together or maybe settled together. And JetBlue is going to have to decide which of the two initiatives it wants to keep. The suit says both airlines agreed to jurisdiction in the Boston federal court. The Justice Department built part of its case on an assertion that JetBlue used to be a disruptor, but now is far cozier with big airlines. It points to the American JetBlue Alliance as part of that, and also to some JetBlue fare moves in lockstep with big airlines. Justice says in the 36-page suit that JetBlue is trying to eliminate the largest ultra-low-cost carrier in the U.S., And that would be bad for lots of working-class and middle-class travelers. The department also notes that JetBlue and Spirit do compete fiercely against each other in some markets. Listeners know that I view the JetBlue-Spirit merger as the opportunity to have a serious fifth-large competitor against the big four. I think there will always be room for ultra-cheap airline service, and Frontier and others will organically, over time, expand to provide that in the U.S. But JetBlue is in no man's land, too small on its own to compete as a big boy airline. It needs Spirit's planes, pilots, and routes. It needs Spirit's presence in the middle part of the country. I believe JetBlue is a more impactful competitor to the big four than Spirit is. Spirit and other ULCCs 
have limited impact on fares because the big guys segregate their match as only basic economy fares, and friends don't let friends fly basic economy. Research from MIT shows that JetBlue actually impacts fares more than a ULCC. JetBlue is harder to ignore. A lot of travelers will take a cheaper JetBlue flight over Delta, American, United, or Southwest, but they won't take Spirit. And JetBlue has had enormous impact on fares in premium cabins with its mint product. I don't think Justice is seeing the forest for the trees. And we really only need to look as far as the transcon markets and now the European markets, as we talked about before. One other thing about this. It's not fair, F-A-I-R, to look at only fares, F-A-R-E-S, with Spirit. Last year, passengers paid an average fare of $64 per flight segment on Spirit. Those passengers paid an average $68 per segment in, quote, non-ticket revenue, quote. In other words, fees. And the fees on Spirit more than double the actual fare. The total cost per flight segment on Spirit was $132 in 2022. That's lower than Southwest's average fare of $169 and JetBlue's average fare of $212. Even when you adjust for the longer average trip JetBlue flies compared to Spirit, JetBlue fares were still on average 37% higher than Spirit all-in fares and fees. So there's no doubt Spirit is cheap. You just have to be careful and not think it's twice as cheap as it really is once you add in the fees. Antitrust policy has become really political. Each administration is basically giving a green light for mergers or a red light that sometimes eventually turns green, often with concessions. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced this suit by saying, quote, if allowed to proceed, this merger will limit choices and drive up ticket prices for passengers across the country. The problem is that's what all the mergers that have come before did. Ten airlines consolidated down to four. I think the industry needed some consolidation. Ten airlines can never be profitable, and you need profits in the industry to support buying new airplanes, giving workers raises, and rewarding investors. This Justice Department is basically saying previous administrations went too far in allowing airline consolidation, and so JetBlue is out of luck. And yes, fares are high, but if you look long-term and adjust for inflation, flying is still relatively cheap and a fair bargain. Would the consumer be better served with a fifth credible big competitor or with a couple of smaller, cheap, fair, high-fee alternatives? That's the real question we should be considering. There are some other curiosities to this suit. The government has a study going on over seating density, sparked by concerns that Spirit and others were packing in too many seats. But the Justice Department, at least, is all in on knee-smashing seat density. The government complains one of the big problems with the JetBlue-Spirit merger is that JetBlue will take seats out of Spirit planes. Likewise, Justice is all in for bare-bones fares and lots of add-on fees, even though President Biden complained about airline junk fees in his State of the Union address. Justice says ancillary fees give consumers choice and let people travel paying for only the services they use. I guess the Attorney General has never had to pay $10 to print a boarding pass at the airport 
or pay an extra $59 in overweight bag fees for a 45-pound bag that would be standard weight on most airlines. And that's on top of the regular bag fee, which would be $51 if you pay when you book the ticket, or $61 if you pay when you check in online, or $89 when you pay at the airport. A penalty of $48 on a $51 fee because you forgot to pay for a first check bag when you booked. That isn't a junk fee? I think maybe it is. You could end up paying $148 to check a 45-pound bag at the airport. That bag would cost you $35 on JetBlue. What would consumers do without that kind of service from Spirit? I guess the Justice Department really is independent of the White House, at least on the love of airline fees. Ben, I know you can't comment on the Justice Department's action, but we'll have more discussion about it in future episodes with a variety of guests. Airlines Confidential appreciates the support of our great sponsors who bring you this podcast all year long. We especially want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. Its revolutionary geared fan architecture is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. We're joined by one of the best PR executives ever and one of my favorite people to work with, John McDonald. John started out as a flight attendant and then moved to communicating with wider audiences doing PR for TWA, for General Motors, United, U.S. Airways, and American. He's been through multiple mergers and several major accidents, including TWA 800. He has a book, The Sky Is Not Falling, Triumph, Tragedy, and My Fast Life in Public Relations, and now has founded his own crisis communication company, Cayley Communications. John, it's a pleasure to have you with us. We're delighted uh, to talk to you about airline industry and everything beyond. And I want to start with with something kind of general. Uh, you've done communications at lots of big companies. Um, what's the most important thing for companies, particularly airlines, to do when communicating with the public? And do they do it? Yeah, I think they do, Scott. And thanks for having me. And, and I enjoy speaking with you and Ben. I think Most big companies know how to do this, and I think the key is to be truthful, to be transparent, and to be responsive. Almost all large companies do that and do that very well. They have social media teams where they can interact directly with their customers and and with their audiences, and they have trained spokespeople uh, who know how to do that job really well. And I think in terms of, you know, what could we possibly do to make it better, I think it's be even more responsive and more transparent. Over the years, that's been a big change. Um, the immediacy of the need for information has just grown tremendously. And I think we have a challenge every single day to meet that. Do you think there's anything in particular that they do poorly? 
You know, it's very interesting to me. There is this tremendous asset that the airlines have. The General Motors, we had it with OnStar. But with the airlines, uh, they have these massive operations control centers, and they know minute by minute what's happening anywhere in the world that they have airplanes operating. And I think that one of the things that they could do uh, that would be a huge plus would be to really go live from those operation centers, like when the big winter storm's about to hit California this week, and show people, here's where our planes are, here's where we're moving them, here's why we've canceled this number of flights here, it's to save these people over here, and really get that message out, because there will be literally hundreds of thousands of people impacted by weather events, and I think Telling that story live from the floor of your operations center is an incredible opportunity that I think could be taken advantage of. I love that idea. I think that's brilliant. And it might actually bring some empathy toward the airline and make people realize they're not just trying to mess people up. Well, absolutely, Ben. And, you know, there's, I don't care about your canceled flight. I care about my canceled flight, right? So I think just having a better understanding of trying to help as many people and protect as many flights as you can is an important message to get out there. I think people understand that, you know, flights get canceled, things happen. But if they have a little bit larger understanding of the big picture, I just think that serves everybody well. And it's incredibly interesting. I think that's a really cool idea. I always find it comforting to know that there is that operations center, that there are people watching my flight and, and everybody else's flight. But I could you could see sort of a, a you know a daily briefing from the ops center from the the head of operations that would become sort of the trusted voice of the airline that uh, people who travel frequently would would look at the video each day from uh, whoever it was in in the ops center to see what kind of day it was going to be. That's a really cool idea. Well, and I think it also takes away from everybody in their local station where they have the stand-up reporter standing in front of the departures board and all you see is a sea of red cancellations. Mm -hmm. That's all they have. You've got to give them a visual. You've got to give them a story and a message. And I think that's one way to do it. Well, John, your consulting company, Kaylee Communications, does work on crisis communications for companies. That can go way beyond accidents, of course. But what goes into a crisis communications plan? How complicated is it? And do most companies need one and have one? Great question, Ben. Um, I think that, of course, most large companies have these. Um, and the plan really helps identify reasonable risks and then identifies the assets that your company has to respond to those risks. It might find some gaps where you need some help. And it builds the processes for notifications of a crisis and then who and how is the response going to occur. So those are the basic elements. And then each organization can build out a plan based on how big their organization is, what kind of risk they have, and what kinds of assets they have to respond to a, to a crisis. And you're right, it can take many forms. And I, I think an airline is a great example. We all think of a smoking hole in the ground when we think of an airline crisis. But what about when the data cable gets cut between your reservation center and your call center? What happens when all of a sudden a whole bunch of data is compromised and you have 14 million credit cards out there? 
I mean, crisis can take a lot of different forms for companies. And I think understanding what those look like and how you might respond to them is really important. So that's what we do. Or when the police drag a customer out of a plane, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, or an executive out of the headquarters. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- these are the kinds of things that you have to think about. And, you know, how are we going to respond to it? And who is going to respond to it? So I want to talk about your experience with TWA 800. That accident produced all kinds of wild conspiracy theories. And and you not only had to deal with grieving families, but also with grieving employees who realized this could be the end of TWA. That crash was in 1996. And so well before social media took over the world. But what was it like being in the center of that storm? What did you learn from that? Well, it was a life-altering experience, as you can imagine. There are two things that people don't remember or don't recall about that that I think are important to remember. One is we had started that day at five in the morning talking about our first ever quarterly profit. So for us to be able to go out with a really positive financial message at that time was really important. So we had spent the entire day um working with the financial media and getting the message out to employees about making our first quarterly profit, which was unbelievably positive. And then, as we all know, come 8.30 at night, uh, the aircraft explodes over um, you know, the ocean 11 miles off of uh, Mauritius, and we lose 230 people. But of those 230 people, one thing people don't realize, that was the largest single loss of aviation families and family members in aviation history. Mm. 52 people on that plane were either crew members, pass riders, uh, retirees, or friends of uh, employees. So it was a massive internal uh, trauma for our organization and for the airline industry at large. And did the conspiracy theory stuff start early? Did you have to try and tamp that down or did that all come later? You know, it was really tailor-made for it, and I'll tell you why. We had had the Olympic Park bombing uh, just probably a month and a half before that. Right, yeah. And um, it was a parallel um, FBI and NTSB investigation, which very rarely ever happens. And so as long as the FBI was involved in it, there was always an opportunity for some nefarious criminal motivation to be given to the accident. Um, It didn't help that Jim Kallstrom, who was the lead FBI agent, had a relative on the aircraft who was killed. Um, So that, you know, gave personal motivation to uh, Agent Kallstrom to really dig in. And and then obviously throughout the course of the investigation, any law enforcement lead that came up was immediately attributed to the cause of the accident. So a normal aircraft, you can call it normal, uh, the usual process for an aircraft accident uh, with loss of life like this is an NTSB thing where you try and figure out what happened. But when you have a parallel criminal investigation going on at the same time, everybody and their brother comes out of the woodwork and says they know what happened. Yeah. Well, John, we know you have some strong opinions about the Norfolk Southern response to the horrible recent derailment in Ohio. We don't usually talk trains on Airlines Confidential, but there are undoubtedly a lot of similarities to aviation accidents here. So what mistakes do you see Norfolk Southern making, and what should airlines who might have a situation in the future be wary of given this? 
Ben, it's just been incredibly frustrating to watch it from the sidelines. My, my consulting business model, I, I often explain it in a very simple sentence. My business model is really smart people doing really stupid stuff. And that keeps me engaged in crisis management. And one of the things that um, I think Norfolk Southern has done that's been really harmful to them, their brand, and to the community that they've been responding to is they were very slow to identify it as a crisis. And I'll give you one example as to why that may be. So in 1975, there were 6,328 derails that occurred that year alone. In 2000, there were 2,112. And in 2021, there were 1,087 train derailments in this country. That's three a day. All right. So having a train derailment is not that unusual of an occurrence. And to have freight spilled or have, you know, uh, hazardous materials spilled, again, is not that uncommon of, a, of an occurrence. And I think what really happened, and again, this is easy for me to say being on the sidelines, but I think really what happened was they treated it initially as a routine derailment with a chemical spill. And then there was probably a decision made at the local level that the best way to deal with the chemical spill was to light it on fire as opposed to having the tanks potentially rupture and explode. Well, as soon as you lit it on fire, you gave every network in this country the visual that they needed to say, oh my gosh, look, there's this massive thing burning in the middle of the country. And then you also expanded the area of impact by having that air and that cloud taken over tens of miles of what was originally a localized chemical spill. Now it's a massive uh, contamination area. And I don't think that Norfolk Southern was quick to respond to what that potential escalation of the crisis was. So I think from an airline perspective, recognizing it, and the social media teams are, are experts at this, and they're really good at it. They're really good at seeing when isolated reports come up and things are happening, and they can literally watch them gain traction in the social media space. And I would probably not be too far off the mark here to say social media is not a robust discipline within the Norfolk Southern leadership team. Mm. So being able to see how in real time people are reacting to it and what's going on in the ground is critical to understanding the level of crisis and what you need to quickly respond to it. And I think they've done a, a decent job since then They've set up a family assistance center. They've partnered with the local health department. They've done a lot of things that you normally do. The problem is they've done all that like 10 days to two weeks too late. So now they're behind the ball and no matter what they do, they're going to be condemned for it. And then when you have the federal government show up, uh, that's never, uh, it's the old saying, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. That never is helpful. <laughs> it really isn't. But it's also been a, a case where this, I'm not sure the CEO has done the company proud. Um, the late night comedians have been making fun of him. I think it's, he's frustrated some people. It's an interesting thing to me to, you know, the question of, well, when do you roll out the CEO and how do you do it? Southwest got criticized for not getting Bob Jordan out there with the Christmas crisis. And, and for several news cycles, uh, the only Southwest uh, uh, voice that, that was in the media uh, was, I think, the station manager in Houston. Um, is, is that, uh, I know with, with accidents, it's even a bigger problem because the NTSB doesn't want the airline talking. 
Um, but what's what's your view on on when you roll out the CEO and and for what purpose? I think it's really important for the CEO to be engaged right from the start. Um, when Southwest had their first and at this point only fatality, um, their CEO at the time uh, had a video on social media within four hours of the incident occurring. So he got out in front of it. And I think when there's fatalities, it's really easy to understand we have to get up uh, and get in front of this. I think the hardest thing is what Norfolk Southern went through. And that is nobody got killed, right? Mm -hmm. There were no serious injuries. It looked just like another flaming train derailment. So the the mix of having the lack of initial engagement, then the escalation on the ground of the initial response to the, the train cars and the the burning of the train cars, and then not engaging immediately with a full-blown crisis response and, and getting him to the scene immediately. Uh, I think the NTSB does a great job on this. They tell you they're coming. They tell you when they get there. They tell you who's involved. They may not have any information at all, but they're visible, they're on the scene, and they're shown to be engaged. And that was clearly lacking. You know, when, when he came out and said, hey, guess what? We're not going to leave you. And then he walks away from a town hall meeting. He left them. You know, it's like you say one thing and then you do something else. That doesn't help you either. So, Ben, when you were CEO, were you ready? Well, I was trained every six months to be ready. We had an outside communications firm. We would simulate an accident. I wouldn't know what that was. We would engage other people in the company. They would have me get up as if I was talking on national TV. They would tape me. Then they would evaluate what I did right, what I could do better. They trained me on what I should say, what I couldn't say, what tonality I should take. And in my 10 years as CEO, I went through that training probably 20 or 22 times. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I never had to use it, but I felt that I might have been ready had something happened. That's fascinating. So, John, you started as a flight attendant, and you've done a lot of labor communications. Um, What's different about communications during labor negotiations? We, We have a ton of negotiations going on right now. How do you see communications impacting those negotiations? I think it's important to remember that um, when negotiations go on, the environment that you're communicating in uh, is an environment that that message will be taken into the audience that is involved in negotiations. So just being sensitive uh, to what's happening in the environment as you're negotiating is important as a communicator. Um, We have, um, in most of the industries right around this time of year, uh, executive bonuses come out and uh, payment plans come out for people who are on pay-to-perform programs. Um, And giving people big checks for pay for performance from the year prior doesn't always sit well with people when you're trying to negotiate a contract and tell them you can't give them a raise. So recognizing the environment that you're operating in And also understanding from your perspective as a communicator for the company, recognizing that a lot of messages that will be put out publicly by the union are political in nature. They're designed to build political uh, support for a negotiating position. And they're often spurious. Uh, They will take advantages of incidents and accidents that occur 
with the company to say, see, this is the reason why you have to give us more money, or this is the reason why it's unsafe, or this is the reason why we need more staffing. You're hearing some of that from the unions with the uh, railroads right now uh, about what, what's been going on with Norfolk Southern. So I think just being sensitive to what happens and then ultimately let the deal talk for itself. Once you come up with a tentative agreement, say, hey, we're thrilled that we have a tentative agreement. We look forward to the membership uh, considering it and ratifying it. And we'll let the union tell you all the wonderful details and let them speak to it. Let them take credit for what they got. You don't need to. Just let the, let the deal uh, speak for itself. John, airlines frequently end up being the target of both comedians and politicians, in addition to the angry customers when something goes wrong. Why do you think that is? Does the industry just shoot itself in the foot, or does that come with wings and seats? Yeah, yeah. yeah we used to say that uh, it was the uh, hometown airline effect, that whatever, whatever hub city you lived in, that was the airline you hated. And it's kind of funny because people have this misunderstanding of the airline business. And, and I used to uh, greet new hire flight attendants with this, with this story. And that was, you're going to have people lose it in the gate area. You're going to have people lose it on the airplane. You're going to have people screaming at you at cocktail parties. It's not because you didn't move them from point A to point B and you didn't move them exactly on time. The reason they're on your airplane is because they're going to a wedding or they're going to a vacation they've saved up for for all year or they're going to bury their father or fill in the blank. You are a facilitator for them living their lives. So when something goes wrong and somebody screams at you, you've destroyed my life and I hate you forever and I'm never flying on your airline, you can understand where that comes from. So I think it it helps to build empathy to the frontline employee. And as, a, as an airline communicator coming from a flight attendant position, I had tremendous empathy for the employees and the frontline and the passengers and our customers. Um, having that empathy is really critical to being successful in the job. That's a great point. We've talked a lot on the show about the industry's lame response for years to concerns about family seating. Um, finally, there seems to be some movement, some acknowledgement that airlines are artificially pressuring people to pay extra for adjacent seats, and that's not right when small children are involved. Why does the industry seem so tone deaf on this issue? Great question. Um, it's a simple problem, and it's got a really complex answer, uh, as many things in the airline industry uh, do, as you both know. One of the things that uh, has created the problem has been the airline's desire to keep base fares as absolutely low as possible. Ben, you're an advocate of that. I love that. And being able to make sure that people can make choices for whatever uh, product they want to have, whether they want to sit in first class or coach, whether they want a wider seat or a seat up front, or they want an exit row seat, or they want to have a meal on board, or they want to check a bag or take on a carry-on. It gives them choices so that they can decide how much money they want to commit to this travel experience. When the airlines figured out, and mark my words, the movie theaters are about to go down this path. So this should be a cautionary tale for anybody that owns a movie theater and is going to start either surge pricing for movies or seat assigning for movies, that when you get people who want to sit together, especially with families, it's typically not a parent and a child. That's almost never the problem. You can almost always find somebody willing to give up a middle seat, right, for an aisle or a window. The problem is when you have a parent traveling with three kids 
or a husband and wife or, or spouses traveling together with four or five kids. Now you're taking up an entire row and displacing, you know, multiple people, some of whom who may have paid 50 to 70 to $100 or more for that specific seat assignment that you now want to give to a 12-year-old kid. People don't take kindly to that. So it's a bit of a self-inflicted problem. Back before we charged for that kind of premium seating, I flew as a flight attendant. We never had problems. We, we found ways to get families to be able to sit together. And people were much more willing to move around on an airplane. We'd buy them drinks and, you know, we just make it fun. But nowadays, if you've paid for a particular seat, you really think that's my seat. I'm entitled to it and I'm not giving it up. So, you know, having some regulation and legislation around it will level the playing field. But ultimately, what that is going to result in is higher fares. And that's a choice we all get to make. John, you know, I believe that this is a bigger problem for the really big airlines. I think the lower cost airlines in the U.S. do a better job with this, mostly because they carry lots of families. But what the big guys do is they block all the window and aisle seats for frequent flyers and premium customers. So when a family buys it, even if they're willing to pay for two seats together, they often can't find them. Do you think that's accurate? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt that goes on, Ben. And I think that anytime you have revenue management deciding how you're going to assign seats to customers who have real needs, that's going to be an issue. It's the balance that you have to weigh out. So I think you're absolutely right, Ben, and it's a great tale. And the next time you go to your movie theater with your family, just remember, it could be worse. <laughs> well, before we let you go, John, you must have had a number of really memorable experiences as an airline communicator. Would you share at least one of those with our listeners? Yeah, I, I, and it goes back to what I mentioned a, a few minutes ago about recognizing why we fly and why we do what we do. And I think it helped make me a better airline communicator. And it was a, an incident that occurred on a flight when I was a flight attendant. And it speaks to the issue of why we provide the service we do. It's to help people live their lives and to, to move about and, and have enjoyment in their life. And it was a first flight of the day. And it was a 45-minute hop from St. Louis up to Omaha. And uh, I was at the boarding door and I had three uh, partners flying with me. And this young lady comes on the plane. She'd obviously been sleeping in the terminal overnight. Her hair was all a mess and her clothes were all ragged. She had a very large garment bag over her shoulder. And as she got on the plane, I said, are you okay? How are you doing? And she said, I missed my flight last night. I slept in the, in the airport and I'm going straight from the airport to my wedding. And I said, <laughs> sit down. I stuck her in first class. I said, sit here. Don't worry about anything. We'll take care of this. So I told the other uh, flight attendants and one of them stayed up front to serve first class. I served everybody in coach. The other two flight attendants got her in her dress, got her hair done, got her makeup done. And in that 45 minute span of time, we got her all set and ready for her wedding. And when we were getting ready to land, I threw open the curtain in first class and I said, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to the future Mrs. Smith. And she had a smile on her face and everybody was clapping and taking pictures and applauding. And I'll never forget the picture of her running up the jetway, holding the train of her dress and pulling her wheelie in the other hand. And that was a 45 minute span of probably a five leg day. And it just shows you the impact that you can have 
as a person in the airline industry to positively influence people's lives. And I, I used to tell that story to new hire flight attendants and say, look for those opportunities because you may not be able to do much, but you know what? You can do something. That's a great story, John. Really appreciate it. Thank you for all you've done for the airline industry. And, uh, and thank you for being with us on Airlines Confidential. We'll be back with more after a brief break. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again, John, for a fabulous discussion. I want to remind listeners about an exciting event that we'll be participating in this spring, Aviation Festival Americas 2023, which will be May 16th and 17th in Miami Beach. Ben and I will be on stage on the morning of the 17th recording the podcast with the audience and a very special guest. And Airlines Confidential listeners get a special discount. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com and click on the banner and use AC50 to save 50% on your registration. This is the 15th year for Aviation Festival Americas, and it always has a great group of industry leaders and excellent informative topical sessions. We'd love to meet listeners in Miami, so take advantage of that 50% discount and come see us. Ben, we have several interesting listener comments and questions this week. Wayne from Chicago says, Hi, Ben and Scott. I love listening to your podcast weekly on my way to work. You reveal a lot of inside baseball about the business, and it's really exciting. I've been waiting for an episode that puts frontline employees in the spotlight. Each airline hires individuals it feels are the right fit for their company. What does that mean? For example, what makes someone great for Southwest but not great for Delta? Furthermore, with a big airline merger on the horizon, could you revisit a merger of the past where the cultures of two different airlines were brought together and caused problems? American and U.S. Airways wasn't easy, nor was United and Continental, and to this day, some employees often complain about colleagues from the other side. Can't we all just get along? Ben, you've led airlines with different cultures and employee groups. Do you think they take on a personality of their own and certain people are better suited for certain airlines? This is a really interesting question, Scott, and thank you very much, Wayne, for submitting it. You know, I don't think that certain people fit specifically at certain airlines, but different airlines certainly do have different cultures. And so what it really comes down to is how flexible are you as an individual And do you believe in your airline's culture? I can tell you, Scott, when we started a transition at Spirit back in the middle 2000s to go from sort of a very poor version of JetBlue that Spirit was trying to be into sort of the Ryanair of the U.S., there were some employees who said, you know, I don't want to work at an airline like that. I want to work at an airline that thinks more about the onboard product and puts the customer maybe a little more forward. And they chose to leave and probably were a better fit at a JetBlue or maybe a Delta. 
And yet there were other people who said, this is the way we can offer really low fares, and that's going to be great for people, and that excites me. So it really comes down to the individuals, what they think is right, and what you don't want to be is someone working in an airline who thinks about their business in a fundamentally different way than you do. So if you disagree with the way your company treats customers or treats employees or schedules airplanes or schedules crews and such, you can try to make change within the company or maybe you can go work for a company that thinks more like you do. I think that's the right way to think about it, Scott. It's not like some people can only work one place and not another. I I love this topic, and thank you, Wayne. Uh, I tried to write about it a lot over the years. I'm reminded one of my favorite new hire stories came from Clyde Beto, who ran WestJet in Canada. And he used to go in front of every new hire class and say, we only hire happy people. If you're an unhappy person, go to work at Air Canada. You'll find many people there just like you. And that was kind of a joke, but uh, I think it, you know, it says a lot of what you're saying is really about pride in the company. And I think this is universal, not just the airline industry. You have to believe in the company you work for. I remember in the early days of the Continental turnaround, where employees um, had really suffered for a long time under a lot of bad management. And when Gordon Bethune engineered uh, the turnaround, which you were part of, people really started showing pride in the airline and management cared about it. They cared about whether people got on that crew bus with crews from other airlines and felt good about the uniform they were wearing. In fact, uh, I remember uh, talking to executives about sales in the company store of airline merchandise. Did employees want to wear the cap that said Continental or the T-shirt that said Continental, the sales in the company store really increased uh, when people felt good about the airline. But I'm also reminded of stories about Southwest new hires. The airline's playful, fun-loving reputation caused new hires to be shocked when they had to work very hard. Some couldn't handle it. They thought it was going to be a limbo party every day, and they came uh, to, to have fun. Instead, Southwest workers work damn hard, and they and they do have fun, and they party well occasionally, but the hard work was a surprise for many new hires. I think at any company, workers adapt both to the expectations and the culture, and airlines are no different. They may just be harder to manage, however, since just about everyone is remote and spread all over the world. Great story, Scott. Let me tell you one of my favorite culture stories. A number of years ago, I was talking to the leader of a vacation travel company. And what he told me is that every time they graduated a new class of agents, he would meet with them and tell them this story. He'd say, if someone comes into the store and they sit at your desk and they don't buy a vacation, when they leave the store, I want you to get up, go in the bathroom, 
look in the mirror and say, what did I do wrong? (laughs) And his point was, the only reason people come into our store is to buy a vacation. So if they don't, you failed in your job. How do you think that culture translates if that's what you hear on your first day, Scott? Yeah, I I think you'd be pretty intimidated. Uh, But then again, um, uh, you know, only the confident would stick around, I think. I think that's right. Well, Scott, here's another meaty question. JP from Newton, Massachusetts, right? I recently read that ginger ale is the best drink to have on an airplane while flying because it tastes much better than when on the ground. Is the taste of food and drink truly different when you're up in the air? Care to sink your teeth into this one, Scott? Yummo, yes. I spent a lot of time in airline kitchens doing stories on food both because readers love them and because I got to taste lots of interesting stuff. JP is right. The high altitude and dry air of the airplane cabin dulls your taste buds. You have a hard time smelling food and an even harder time tasting it. Airlines use wines that are very fruity and strong because a lot of that flavor will be dulled in flight. Same with food. You have to be very strong with flavors to get them to come through. Bland food has no taste. It tastes, well, like airline food. Scott, I had a laugh when I read J.D.'s note, though, because I don't think I've ever heard anyone in a restaurant order a ginger ale to drink. I'm sure it happens, but sitting there, I don't ever remember a time when someone near me said, please bring me a ginger ale. But I hear it on airplanes all the time. So I think he's right. I think more people do drink ginger ale on airplanes than they do on the ground. But I don't know if it's because it tastes better. You know, one of one of my favorite drinks on an airplane is uh, cranberry juice. Um, because it because the taste is a little too strong for me on the ground, uh, but it's great in the air and and having the juice helps keep you hydrated. So um, I I think you know people can try things in the air that they wouldn't try on the ground and uh, and really enjoy it. I'm going to try cranberry juice on my next flight. Well, that's all we have on the menu for Airlines Confidential this week. We'll be back next week and hope to see you all in Miami in May. So long until next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.